0: Welcome to Oikos. How are you guys doing? How many of you know that Jesus loves you? Now, when we think about how much he loves us, it is incomprehensible for us to actually figure that out. Because when we think about Jesus who loves the world, who came and died for everyone, every sinner, I want you to think for a moment, how many times have you tried to love someone that in your mind seemed unlovable. Surely it happened this week. Maybe it was even in your own family. Maybe it was with someone that you've been a friend with for a long time, but now it just they just seem to annoy you. Jesus takes that love And he looks at everyone, whether you're doing really good things or you're doing really bad things. And somehow, this is the incomprehensible part, he loves them. He gives the same invitation for the person who just got checked in at the county jail as he gave to you today an invitation to have life with him. And as we end the book of Acts, We're going to be pulling from chapter 25 today. But that love was the same love that Paul felt. Because as Paul was walking to Damascus to do some horrible things, he experienced the love of Jesus. And that really began his new story. A story that would change his name from Saul to Paul. A story that would then change the world. A small little church... Jerusalem would begin to spread to all places, principally because God used Paul to touch the world. So now we find this Paul stuck. He wants to do great things, but he is stuck. He can't go anywhere because he is in chains, and he's before this guy named Festus who's just recently taken over. We're in chapter 25, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Three days after Festus arrived in Caesarea, Caesarea, to take over his new responsibilities, <clears throat> he left for Jerusalem, where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met, him, met with him and made their accusations against Paul. They asked Festus as, as, for a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush and kill him on the way. But Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea, and he himself would be returning there soon. So he said, those of you in authority can return with me. If Paul's done anything wrong, you can make your accusations. About eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea, and the following day, he took his seat in the court and ordered that Paul be brought in. When Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious "'accusations that they couldn't prove. "'Paul denied the charges. "'I am not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws "'or the temple or the Roman government,' he said. "'Then Festus, wanting to please the Jews, asked him, "'Are you willing to go to Jerusalem "'and stand trial before me there?' "'But Paul replied, "'No, this is is the official Roman court, "'so I ought to be tried right here. "'You know very well I am not guilty of harming the Jews.' If I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I'm innocent, no one has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I appeal to Caesar. So there's a big courtroom drama going on. Paul's before the Roman authority, and he also has these Pharisees, possibly some Sadducees that are before this Roman court as well expressing their dislike of Paul and what he's done to their people. There are three charges, but most of them have been dismissed. There are multiple charges. But these three, that he has done wrong against the Jewish law, this one still remains to be scrutinized and tried to be understood by Festus, a man who has little or no knowledge of what the Jewish laws are. That he is wrong to, he did stuff to the temple courts. He brought Gentiles in. And that the most serious probably one is that he has lessened the prestige of Caesar by causing riots and disturbance within the Roman authority. Yet none of these charges could be proved. So they're bringing all this up but they really have no way to prove it. It seems like it should be a slam dunk for Paul, and yet some way or somehow it's not. It says in verse 7, when Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious accusations they couldn't prove. Now what Paul does is that he has a host of strategies in what his life now looks like and how he's going to live it out Before the people, whether he's in front of Gentiles or he's with a bunch of Jews, if he's with people who believe in Jesus or people who don't, he has strategies on how he's going to make sure that people know his story, that story that Jesus loves him. So he developed these strategies as a missionary to the Gentiles primarily, so those who are not Jewish. And what he would find himself is first finding that person of peace, finding a house perhaps where they could gather, and then finding people of influence. And what he found now is that he is in the courts before prefects, governors, and soon would be in the court before Caesar himself, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at this time. And this is his rebuke. He says in verse 11, If I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I'm innocent, no one has the right to turn me over to these men. To kill me, I appeal to Caesar. His strategy is bringing Paul to the very central authority who has influence over the known world. Now, some of us will be frightened. Right? Some of us would not want to be set in that courtroom and then appeal to someone who really could care less whether you are whether you love Jesus or not. Could really care less whether you are a Jew or not. Could really care less what they care about is are you causing disturbance within the Empire? Because that's really a pain in the butt for them. So he's going to be on this long journey. Because if you didn't know this, when you appeal to Caesar, it's not like our courtroom today. So we can appeal, right? We can appeal to the lesser courts and then the higher courts and then all the way to the Supreme Court. And when you do that, it's the expense is not on you. Your travel expense, if they transfer you to a different jail, if they say your court's going to be... In Beaumont instead of here, then you you don't pay that expense. You're just sent there. But in these days, Paul had to pay for that. So the moment he said, I will appeal to Caesar, it came out of his funds, his resources, in order to get there. And that's why we find Paul then traveling by boat, and this journey takes he's already been in Caesarea for two years before he leaves for Rome. And his journey to Rome will include many things, many hardships. And at any time, he could probably say, let's take it back, forget this appeal to Caesar. But he continues moving forward. So he's hungry during part of this time because they don't have enough food. And then they have a shipwreck. And then... He is bitten by a snake, a poisonous snake that should have killed him, but through a miracle he lives. And this is all on his journey to get to Rome, to face what we will know as his execution. He doesn't know that yet, but he's doing all of this at his own expense so that he can have influence for the gospel in Rome, the central place of authority. It says in Acts 28, we're skipping ahead a few chapters here, in verse 30 and 31, for the next two years Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. During this time, Paul writes to the church that Help pay this expense. It's the Philippian church. He loves the Philippian church because the Philippian church was the first one to say, We support you in your ministry and we're going to give whatever we can sacrificially to make sure it happens. And so he's writing to the Philippian church and he says this in verse 21 of chapter 4 in the book of Philippians Give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you their greetings. And all the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household or what we would call his oikos. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul's main strategy, his main methodology is working within the oikos that God places him. Now, remember that oikos in Greek means family, means household, means extended family, because groups of people would live, whether they had servants or no servants, whoever was in that household, grandmas and grandpas, children, cousins, they were all part of that oikos. So Caesar had a big oikos, if you can imagine. The most important person in the world's eyes, in the world at this point, he had numerous servants, numerous families coming in and out of his main household, and Paul engages with them with the gospel. He's in the middle of their house within their oikos, and he's not just doing this by himself. He's inviting his team to come and see him. He's inviting leaders to come through and encourage and talk with them and then send them back out to hit other places as well. Now, I think for a lot of us, when we find ourselves in circumstances that we don't like, I mean, when was the last time you knew you needed to do something, but it took you four years to do it? How many of you go... Man, it's awesome waiting four years to get to do that. So Paul's in the middle of trying to figure out patience, which I think all of us could say, yeah, that's something I need a little bit of. And he's doing it brilli- brilliantly because he doesn't just say, ah, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? Instead he goes, where I'm at right now is significant enough for me to share my story and to share the story of Jesus. So I'm going to share the story of what Jesus did with me, and I'm going to share the story of what Jesus did for me. He works within the Caesar's oikos. I wonder how many of us, when we think about that influential oikos that we find ourselves in, for some of us, it may be your workplace. Some of them may be even larger than Caesars were. Maybe you work for Chevron or ExxonMobil Exxon or Chase or a large 500 company. And you go, man, there's thousands of people. Too many people for me to even know, let alone speak to that may have been larger than Caesar's. I don't really have the numbers on how many people were in Caesar's oikos. But I'm sure it was more than, than Paul could get to actually know. And I think once you get over 200 people, it doesn't matter if it's 200 people or if it's 20,000 people, you're not going to get to know all of them. But his strategy was to con- continue to look for those people at peace. And continued to invite people into his house. Because he was provided a house. This wasn't like prison for him. He was chained to a guard. And the guard, he probably had, oh, from me to the door of a length of a chain. Enough so that if he needed to go use a bathroom, he didn't have to bring his guard with him. I'm sure the guard appreciated that. Enough that he could meet with someone Semi-privately and kind of have the guard at a distance. But he always had a chain because he was accused of a crime. So he was always inviting people in and talking and staying on mission, regardless of what oikos he was in. What I see is is very incredible, and this is the first time that I really read this in Acts. Is it the way of Jesus or the gospel, the story of Jesus is affecting Caesar's household? And it's in this household that the Roman church begins to grow. There were a few believers when Paul got there. But through his influence in Caesar's household, his oikos, more and more people were added to the Roman church. See, the gospel of Jesus has no bounds, but I believe we have a tendency to create boundaries for the gospel. I've heard many say that I cannot share my faith or I cannot share my story with Jesus or the story of Jesus because I work in the public school and there's rules against that. When we look at the story of Paul, the rules that are set don't seem to affect his motivation to share. I've heard many say, well, I work in corporate America, and you just don't understand. The rules of corporate America are different. You just don't share religion or politics. Those are two subjects you cannot share. If Paul would operate that way in Caesar's household, then many people in Caesar's household would not be receiving a new life. I've heard many say, well, my neighborhood just doesn't seem friendly to church. All the doors are closed and it's hard to talk to people, so we just can't really... I don't think I'm meant to influence that oikos. My family probably doesn't want to know. I've heard many people say that. Or I know my family so well and they've heard about it and they just don't, you know, they just don't want to know. Or if I speak about Jesus, I may mess up my opportunity for promotion. Or if I invite people into my home from my work or my neighborhood or from the various oikoses that I find myself in, if I invite them into my oikos, it may be kind of weird. Many of us seem to be uncomfortable sharing our story that Jesus created in us because he has touched us in some way whether he touched you for the first time in your baptism when you were a baby or he touched you for the first time through a shared word, his word of someone that came into your life when you were later as an adult. We seem to forget that significant moment when Jesus said, I want to invite you into the love that I have for you. It's always been there for you, but you have not yet experienced it. So come into it more closely. So a question for you guys is, are you intentionally working the oikos? Are you working that oikos, that extended family? Remember, don't be thinking right here just because we're called oikos. Be thinking, am I working in my place of business, that oikos, that family that spends eight hours a day together? I mean, think about that person. If If you work in a cubicle, You're pretty much with them eight hours a day. Think about the person that you're out in the field working with, and you're out there the entire day working with this person. Think about that team that you're working with for eight hours. Teachers, think about all those kids you're working with the entire day, and then the teachers that you hang out with when you're taking the breaks. I know you don't get that many breaks. But the teachers that you complain to the, about the kids that you have with during those times—how are you working those oikos? Are you intentionally working them? And are you seeing that God intentionally placed you there? Do you see God's hand in putting you where you're at right now? Moms and dads who stay home with the kids. Do you see the connections that you make throughout the day as intentional, not random? When you go to the gym, do you see that as intentional or just something you do? Does the gospel have an invitation? in every place of your life? Or is it segmented off for Sunday morning or maybe for some of us during missional community or for some of us when we feel good? Do you see how the gospel can start to lose its presence when you begin to put boundaries when you begin to say, Oh, it's awesome, but not right now. Oh, it changed my life, but not this part. Or, Jesus, I'm glad you love me and I love you, but not everybody needs to know it. Paul continues to tell a story no matter where he's at, no matter whether he's in chains or he's out of chains. He lives his life the same way he lived his life when he was out of chains. So when he went to Ephesus and he wasn't in chains, he was inviting leaders to come in, constantly discipling, constantly sending, constantly allowing people to see what does it look like to live life with Jesus. Now, we may say, well, that is Paul, and I'm Aaron, or I'm Dina, or I'm Dana, or I'm Rick. I am not Jesus. Absolutely, you're not Jesus, and many people are glad that I am not Jesus. Kenneth. Many people are glad that Kenneth is not Jesus. We want someone who's perfect right? And only Jesus fits that mold, but Jesus has invited us to be like him. And the invitation isn't one to beat you down and go, oh man, I failed everywhere. It's an invitation to say, do it and see the blessing. If you don't do it, Jesus' love doesn't change. I just started out this morning His love for you is as much as it is for the guy who's on death row and is going to die today. His love for you is as much as the guy who beat up his wife and is in jail this morning. We don't like to hear that because we like to put ourselves on levels like, well, I'm a good person. How many of you think you're a good person? And you're not. I had Tell people this at a funeral. You think you're good, but you're not good. And all you have to do is be real with yourself for a moment and go, even in my attempts to do good, they really kind of, you know, all the kids are with us today, so I'm not going to use my normal terminology that's not that brilliant, but it just works. Our attempts don't make it, but our story in Jesus does. So when you invite people into your home, it's not about trying to show them how good you are. I love it that when a few people have come to our house, normally they would swear all the time, and then they come into our house, and all of a sudden they realize they're in the pastor's house, and so they try to stop their swear words from coming out because Sarah and I have never sweared in our life. (laughs) Paul is inviting people into his life, and he's showing, this is the life that Jesus has given me, and my life is not on the things that I do, but it's on the person he made me. He's redeemed something that I thought was unredeemable. And because he's done that, that means he can do it for you. He's loved me even though I'm really not that much to love. But because he's loved me, that means he can love you. Many of you have been told in your life that you're not worthy or good enough. And there is a sense of truth of that, right? Because you see it. You go, man, I failed a lot. But what God sees is something that he's made that is precious, valuable, valuable enough to send his son to die for you so that you can have life with him forever. That's how he sees you. And so he wants that invitation to come out of you, to be in you in all places and everywhere you go. So what would it look like for you if you utilized your time and time and everywhere you were, to intentionally share the story of Jesus with you. Here's some practical, practical steps I want you to work on. The first thing is that you've got to know your story with Jesus. So just randomly walking down the street and just saying, Jesus died for you, Jesus loves you, may be effective because the Lord works in a lot of ways, but it's not hasn't been seen to be too effective because you've taken the person out and all you're doing is screaming out words. But what is your story with Jesus? No one who has a story with Jesus, their story is no less or greater than anyone else's. I've heard many people say, oh, mine's really boring because I was just baptized in a Christian family and I grew up. I want you to think about how many times have you seen Jesus actively participate in your life where you said there's no explanation other than Jesus. I didn't do it. There have been several times when I can pinpoint times where Jesus interrupted my life Either to say, I am here, I am with you, or watch this. And that's my story with Jesus. The first time is that I was baptized. I was baptized. Now, my mom was born and baptized, right? But my dad wasn't a Christian. And somehow he mixed this man and wife, who are 15 years apart, kind of scandalous. Actually, it was kind. I have They don't even tell me the whole story. Don't. I hope they're not listening. But they brought me to the waters of baptism. My dad was baptized the same time my sister was baptized. That's the first part of my story. Not that the Lord did something with me, but he did something with my family for me before I even got there. I can't explain that. You talk about someone who swears. My dad is a swearer. You got to know the story of Jesus. This means, where do we get the story from Jesus? Do we just kind of pull it out? Where does the story of Jesus come from? This is not rhetorical. Where does it come from? From God's word, right? The more you actively participate in God's word, the more you know the story of Jesus. That doesn't mean just read the New Testament. It means read the whole the whole entirety of God's Word. You get to see who Jesus is because it's all about Jesus. The best answer you can ever give when someone asks a question about the Bible is Jesus. It's normally always right. Or you can make some connection. So know the story of Jesus so that you're able to share that story at the right time, the right place. You may not meet someone in your oikos and immediately go, let me tell you the story of Jesus. But you can definitely start with your story. And because your story involves Jesus, they will ask, tell me more about his story. Invite people into your oikos. What is your oikos? First you have to identify what your oikos is and then start inviting people in. So for many of us, it's a physical thing called a home that you live in. And then your extended oikos is the places where you work. When was the last time, how many of you have invited coworkers over in the last month? I want you to keep your hands up, and then I want you to look around. Now, our, I know many of us are unemployed. I know that that's, many of us have been unemployed for a while. But I don't think all of us are. Look at that. Those are people you spend eight hours a day with. What would it look like if you invited them over for dinner? Dessert. Sarah and I have a thing that we like to invite people over for dessert when we have something that we don't want to take an entire evening because it's easy. You already have your dinner. You can clean everything up. You have a little, we enjoy dessert. So you have dessert there ready. People come over, you have dessert. You get to talk a little bit. Fun. They get to go home, unless they linger. And then the trick is, you just get up and you start moving towards the door, slowly. And if they're talking to you, they're going to move with you, and then all of a sudden you're at the door and you go, oh, well, you guys have a great night. You may not want that strategy, but you know what? Have something, because only three of you raise your hands. Invite your coworkers over. What about those of your family? How many of you invited someone from your family? Extend family over in the last month. Now I think a lot of us have families. Our God is an intentional God. He doesn't do random. He didn't create the world randomly. He didn't just go, hope it worked. When you read through Genesis, you see how structured and particular he is with every move. How much care and love is in every move. You have a home not by accident. You have a place to lay your head, not by accident. So invite people into that. Peace. It's important that when you invite people in, that you are who you are in Christ. This goes beyond just having crosses on the walls and some Jesus sayings, right? And then go, oh, well, I hope they read that one. Boy, they really needed to hear that one. Whew. If they didn't, maybe we can invite them over again and just lean towards it. God wants you to be who you are, a, a child of God, someone who loves Jesus, who means and that means if you have a really good friend, you talk about him. I mean, when I have people over, we end up talking about those who I really love. So ask yourself, why does Jesus seem to be thrown out of the equation when you have people over? And that's a big assumption on my part because you all are probably excellent at this. But I've seen it many times that people have people over, and they're really good. They have people over and have people over and have people over, and they just hope that somehow Jesus will be like... Into them, But what they're waiting to hear is, what is your story with him? Why the heck do you have these crosses on your walls? What's the purpose? Why do you believe in a God who sent his son to die? Believe in a God who says that then that son rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, we have eternal life. It's a crazy story. So, why do you believe in it? I bet you'll be surprised. Which leads us right into the next thing. Don't make assumptions. This is a killer of an Oikos. Don't make assumptions about what people want or don't want to hear about God. I don't know how many times I've heard stories of you all inviting people over to your house and going, Well, we didn't talk about Jesus because I think they know. Okay, then that should have been a commonality. Why wouldn't you talk about Jesus if you think they knew? Why wouldn't you engage in prayer if you think they already know? Or we didn't talk about Jesus because I know they don't like Jesus. Or they just, they don't believe. They don't believe, so we, know, we don't talk about it. Well, how do you know that they don't want to talk about it unless you've talked about it and they've said, I don't want to talk about it? Now, being respectful, I'm okay with that. If someone says, you know what, I don't want to talk about Jesus, I can say, okay. But he's going to come up if you hang around me. Just FYI. It's probably going to happen. It's not meant to hurt you, but it's probably going to happen because he's pretty significant in my life. Let God take care of their rejection or reception of his message. It's not up to you to make someone believe. All you are there is to be a vessel of his love and to give an invitation to remind them that Jesus has loved them from the beginning of time. And the last thing is to not give up. I think many of us have gone through this life and we maybe invited a few people or we we tried to tell someone about Jesus and it didn't go so well. Has anyone tried to tell someone about Jesus and it didn't go so well? I'll raise my hand. I'll tell you a quick story of trying to tell someone about Jesus and it didn't go so well. We were hiking up this volcano. It was in Guatemala. And I was with a good buddy from the seminary. And we were going up. And on the way up, we just got stationed, kind of, because you can't really move. You're in a line, right? The guy behind us, he was a Jew from Israel. I know that, I mean, I hadn't met that many actual Jews from Israel. Like, I was like, this is a real Jew. He's really Jew. I mean, you can't get more like that. And so he said, well, what are you got? you know, where are you from? Well, we're from America, you know. I'm from originally Nebraska. He didn't know where that was. And then this other guy was from Texas. He didn't know where that was. And I know, crazy, right? And so then we began talking, and he said, so are you guys Christian? And we said, yes, we're Lutheran. (laughs) Well, we're in seminary. Come on, right? And we began talking, and we began having a debate. And the debate was gentle at first, and then it started to get less gentle. And by the time we got back down the mountain, I don't think we expressed who Jesus was. We gave him a lot of knowledge. I mean, not me. My buddy is much smarter than I was. But we, we gave everything we got from seminary. Because in my mind, the more you give him, the better. But really, all he needed to know is that Jesus loved me and he need to know my story in Jesus. But I was so caught up in trying to explain to him how Jesus was the Messiah and all this kind of stuff and how this made this connection and blah, 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 that I forgot about that this guy isn't just a Jew from Israel. He's a person, same person as I was, who needs to hear the story that God does love him. And that he has given him an invitation just like he gave me an invitation to know him personally. And in knowing him personally, we believe that something supernatural happens, which is you're adopted as his child. You're a part of the family. And that invitation is for you. And whether he accepted that or rejected that was not up to me. But so often I would think it's up to me. It's, do I say the right words? Did I have the right posture? Did I look the right way? Was I cool enough? But that's not how God works. God works through his word. He works through you. He works through how you are right now, not how you think you need to be. Because that's who our God is. And Paul knew that. So as we end this series on Acts, The book of Acts ends by Paul retelling his story and encounter with Jesus and then telling the story of who Jesus is. And those are his last words to this oikos, Caesar's oikos. And it's from that oikos that we begin to see the church of Rome grow even more. I believe that the Lord wants to do great things, intentional things through you, through each of you. For everyone in here, all the kids, this is why I'm, I'm glad it's a covenant Sunday. Because sometimes we look at these little kids and we go, well, they're not going to be intentional till later. But I'm going to tell you that right now, God is using your child in incredible ways in the school, in the preschool, in your play groups, because he loves them as much as he loves you. And he speaks through them sometimes more than he speaks through you. So may we look around and say, each one of you has been called for an incredible purpose. You've been given an incredible story to share, just like Paul. You've you've been given a place to share it, whether it's big or small you can invite people into that space and let them hear those sweet words that God loves them. He loved them through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. And that Jesus knows you personally and has given you an invitation to be in life with him. Through the hard times and the good times, no matter what it is, your story never changes because Jesus is constant. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us all the things that we need to share who you are. Whether we know a lot of your word or we just know a few verses, we know part of the story of Jesus. We know our lives, Lord. Now help us reflect on them and understand where you have intersected and have created a great story for us to tell. Lord, help us to be confident that we can invite people into our home and be who we are in you. That there's nothing that we need to be shameful about or fearful about. That praying with one another is natural when we're in your kingdom. That talking about your son who gave up everything for us is natural because we're so thankful. And Lord, we have a great invitation. It's the best invitation you could ever give. So help us not to withhold it because of our own assumptions about whether or not that person will receive it or reject it. Let us release that to your spirit to do his work. Help us have confidence that you are with us. That you are with us wherever we are. In a workplace that doesn't want to hear about Jesus, In a school that says you can't talk about Jesus. In a family that has rejected Jesus. With a spouse who's not interested in Jesus. With children who've walked away from the church and are tired of Jesus. Lord, may us, us who are a part of your family, may may we, Hear your voice today and share our story. In your name we pray, amen.